Everybody, how you feeling this morning? That's feeling good. Good, good to see you. And uh, hey, before we jump into the message, it has nothing to do with it. I actually had someone from our team give me this note beforehand, and I just want to say this because we love you a lot. So, um, if you have a Chevy truck and your uh, license plate is HDN seven two six three, your lights are on. All right. So I just want to tell you that because I was like, I would hate if your battery went dead. There are plenty of fine folks who'd be more than happy to give you a jump start, uh, but we'd rather not that happen. So if that's you, um, you can you can go ahead and, and turn the lights off on your truck. That'd be good. Has nothing to do with the message, but but there there you have it. So good good to have you guys this morning. Hopefully you had a good week over this past week. I know I had uh, a great week myself. It's a unique week. We actually had uh, two Browns games since we were last together. So curious, how many of you watched? Thursday night's game, the Brown Steelers game. Yeah, that was good, wasn't it? That was a good one. And then how many of you watched last Sunday's game? Last Sunday afternoon, okay, yeah. I was gonna say this, um, should've read the book of Acts. Just should've done it then. And uh, of course, if you were with us last week, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We started a brand new series last week in the book of Acts. I actually issued a challenge to our entire congregation. And I said, what if you this week uh, took some time to read the entire book of Acts? And some of you actually did that. And so that's really cool uh, if you had a chance to do that. But um, all this new series in Acts started last week. If you missed last week, or if it's your first time here, welcome to the conversation. Uh, but just to kind of catch you up to speed with some of what we covered, last week we actually took the entire week just to lay down an introduction. So I said, I want to kind of introduce you both to the book of Acts, but I also want to introduce you to the series and some ways to get involved. And so last week, uh, we actually spent the whole week thinking about three questions. So these three questions are what we talked about together. I said, what is the book of Acts? And so we said, what exactly is the book of Acts? What makes it unique to all other books that we have in our Bible? The second question we talked about, we said, why should we study the book of Acts? Uh, why is it uh, a good use of your time? Why is it a good use of our collective time to take the time to actually study the book of Acts? Why is that relevant to you? Why is that relevant to me? And what are we going to glean from studying the book of Acts? And then the third question we talked about was we said, why now? Is there a reason that we believe that it is timely for us to look at this book, the book of Acts, together uh, here and now? And I just want to tell you, we spent all of last week unpacking those questions. If you missed last week's conversation, I actually think it'd be really, really helpful to you to catch up on that. And so you can go back to our website or to our app, and you can listen to that. All of that is accessible to you. But if I could just summarize where we ended last week, what we, what we said was this, that the reason it's so important that we study Acts 
is that Acts is actually intended to help us rediscover some very, very important things. Uh, specifically, there's three things that the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover. And so here's what we said. We said the book of Acts is gonna help us rediscover the message of Jesus. And so we said Acts is gonna help us rediscover how is it that the resurrected Jesus wants to continue to work in this world. And we said, first off, it's gonna help us understand the message. What is the message that defined the early church? What is the message that Jesus gave to the first Christians that utterly transformed the ancient world? Then we said, Acts is also gonna help us rediscover the mission. What is the mission that Jesus Christ is on on this earth? And what isn't that mission? How are we to understand that? And then we said that the book of Acts is also gonna help us gain clarity on rediscovering the method. How does Jesus want to accomplish his message? How does he want to get this message out to the world? And how does he intend to do that? And what do we have to do with that? And so we said, that's what Acts is gonna help us with. And that's actually kind of an overview of the entire series. So what I wanna do today, starting today, and actually for the next couple of weeks, is I really wanna think together about the message. We'll talk about that. So here's the question that we're trying to get after here today. What is, what was, and what is the message that Jesus gave to his original followers um, after he raised from the dead in the first century? What was that message that Jesus gave? In other words, what we're trying to seek after is, what is the message that the early church proclaimed that absolutely turned the ancient world on its head? What was the message that catapulted an explosive movement that started in Jerusalem and worked its way throughout history all the way to the other side of the world? What exactly was that catalytic message that was given? What is the message that was so scandalous that for the Christians in the first century, by preaching it, it caused some of them to be persecuted, arrested, and even for some of them to lose their life? What was that message and what wasn't? that message. And here's why that's a relevant question for us to think about. Because for those of us who follow Jesus, and again, I know not everybody here today is a follower of Christ, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the question that this should force us to ask is, is that our message? Is the message, is the core of the message that they proclaimed, is it the core of the message that we proclaim? Or have we added to, or have we subtracted from, or have we diluted, or have we delineated from that message? So that's, that's why this is such a relevant Topics. That's what we're going to think about. So what is the core? What is the core of that message? Well, I think a good starting place as we kind of jump into this is actually to begin by giving you a little bit of an illustration. I think it's a helpful way for us to think about the message of Christianity. So um, this past week, I actually was talking with Colin. Uh, some of you guys know Colin Page. He was giving announcements up here just a moment ago, and he helps oversee our young adult ministry called United. And actually, the folks in United are studying Acts as well right now, so it's kind of cool that we get to do that together. So Colin and I have been kind of comparing notes a little bit, just kind of talking about, hey, what are you studying? What are you learning uh, in Acts? And he told, me this, he told me this really fantastic illustration. I thought it was really helpful and it was really clarifying. And what we were talking about was we were talking about era-shifting events. All right, so I want you to think about this with me for a second. Can you think about, in your life, an event or a moment that was, that was so monumental that it was in many ways an era-shifting event? In other words, your life was one way, and then after this moment or after this event, it ushered in a new era or a new reality in which your life from this point forward was no longer going to be the same. Can you think of something like that? And my guess is you can probably think of a lot of things like that. I think a lot of us experience those kind of moments in our life, era-shifting events. And so, for example, uh, some of us might think of like graduation. 
Maybe for you, you just graduated high school, uh, uh, or maybe you graduated college, you know, uh, back, in, back in the spring or whatever. And for some of you, you think about that, that that was, that was a definitive era-shifting moment. That was an event in which you knew that your life as it previously was, as a high school student or as a college student, is no longer going to be the same. And so there's now a new reality that's ushered in. There's new, there's new things that are gonna be true about your life that weren't true of your life before. There's new patterns that are put in your life because of that. Or maybe for some of you, uh, you're in a different stage of life. Maybe you think about becoming empty nesters. And maybe some of you have just recently went through that. You've become empty nesters. And maybe your, your, your child or your children in your house turned 18 and went to college, or maybe they turned 22 and or maybe they turned 29, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but it's just now you find yourself in that place where you have an empty nest. And that, what is that? It's an era-shifting reality. Uh, what previously was true about the normal pattern of your life has now shifted, and you're, and you're in a new kind of set of things. And I think we can all think of stuff like that. Um, some of them are major moments, major events. Some of them are minor. Um, I'll give you an example. Here, here's a minor one from my life. I think I actually experienced a minor era-shifting event uh, actually about three or four weeks ago. So this is the first time this ever happened to me, but when it happened to me, I thought, oh, it's never gonna be the same again. And here, here's what it was. So some of you can relate to this. I am um, I'm 41 years old, all right? And I know it's hard to believe. And uh, I, um, the other, a uh, couple weeks ago, I pulled out my phone to, I don't know, check a text or an email or something. And when I glanced at my phone, it was all blurry. And I was like, I can't see that. And so I did, I did, so you guys know what I'm talking about. I did this move right here. <laughs> and since then, it only happens every day now. And I thought, that's it. I was like, that's it. I knew it was gonna happen. I knew it was, some of you guys are, I'm like, I'm in a new era. And so now bifocals are gonna be in my future. I can see it coming, you know, and it's all, my eyes are getting old. Not the rest of me, but my eyes are getting, are getting old. And so um, era shifting events, we can all think of things like that. Now, I want you to take that thought and I want you to actually expound on it a little bit, all right? I want you to imagine an event that is so monumental that it doesn't just impact your personal life. It's not just an era-shifting event for you. It's an era-shifting event for an entire group of people. Maybe an era-shifting event for a whole country or for the whole world. Can you think of something like that? I think a lot of us can probably think of stuff like that. Um, my, my guess is, um, if you guys have been watching any of this, in the United Kingdom, they're probably experiencing an era-shifting moment with the passing of the queen. There's an old era and a new era is, is coming in some ways. Or here, here's a negative example, but I, I, and so is the previous one, but here's a negative example I think we all would think of. We probably think of COVID, right? We think of the pandemic. You can even hear it in the way that we talk. We, th we say things like pre-pandemic and post-pandemic world. Uh, we'll say things like this. We, we are in a, uh, we're in a new normal now. And what is all that? We're saying that there's something that happened. There was an event that happened that was so cataclysmic, there's an event that happened that was, so, that was so big that it affected the entire world, the people who are living on the earth right now. Now, I want you to take that thought, and I actually want you to push it forward another notch. Can you imagine an event, something that was so monumental, that it didn't just impact, impact everyone in the world, but impacted everyone in the history of the world? Can you imagine an event that was so impactful, that was so monumental, that it literally split history, that it introduced an era, it was an era-shifting moment that changed the reality of, of one era to the next in a way that impacts everybody. Can you imagine something like that? And I just want to tell you that if you can get your mind around something like that, if you can envision something like that, I believe that you're beginning to understand the starting place of what the core message of Christianity is all about. What is it that we Christians are proclaiming? Well, I want to tell you, at the heart of what we are proclaiming is an era-shifting 
event. It is something that happened that changes everything, changes everything. Now, what is that? Well, let's take a look together. Acts chapter one. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you flip with me? Acts one is where we're gonna go. And uh, we, we were in Acts one last week, so we're gonna return back there again. If you need to use one of the Bibles that are under the chairs, page 882 is where you're gonna find Acts. And so you can feel free to use those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love it if you just took one of those. Take it home. We'd love for you to, to make that Bible yours. Okay, so Acts chapter one is where we're gonna go. Now, as you're finding Acts chapter one, um, let me just give you a little bit of backdrop. And I wanna give you uh, just a few important features uh, in the book of Acts that are gonna be helpful as we read this passage. Um, so a lot of you hopefully are studying the book of Acts, you're reading it together with us. And I want you to know that Acts is 28 chapters. So you're gonna see Acts is 28 chapters long, but those 28 chapters cover the span of about 30 years. Uh, it's easy when you're reading Acts to think that things are happening rapidly, but you're actually gonna see that these things happen over the span of about a 30 year period of time. Another thing you're gonna learn about the book of Acts, Acts covers a massive geographical range. It covers tens of thousands of miles in the book of Acts. But maybe one of the most distinct features of Acts, and this is gonna be helpful for us as you read through Acts, and it's gonna be helpful today as well. One of the most distinct features of the book of Acts is that Acts is gonna tell us about these sermons and these speeches that are given. And so I just wanna point this out. In the book of Acts, you're gonna see that there are there are so many speeches and sermons that are given by the early church leaders. And so you're gonna see, for example, there are 10 major speeches. And by major, what I mean is they're lengthier, they're more detailed. Three of those are gonna be from Peter. Uh, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He actually was a fisherman who started to follow Jesus and his life was transformed. He preaches three of those sermons. You're gonna see a guy named Stephen preaches one of those sermons. He actually was the first one who was killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. We call that a martyr. He was the first martyr. Then six of those sermons were given by a guy named Paul, which we're gonna learn his story as we go through the book of Acts. So you're gonna see 10 speeches, but here's what I also want you to notice. Throughout the book of Acts, there's gonna be 30 minor speeches. So you're gonna have 30 summaries of speeches that are given. And here's what blew my mind as I was studying the book of Acts. Did you know that the speeches in Acts make up approximately 365 of the about 1,000 verses in Acts? Why is that significant? Because what that's telling us is that the book of Acts is about a third, more than a third of the book of Acts is dedicated to these speeches or these sermons. Now, why is that important? Because I think what that's telling us is that Acts is very concerned with making sure that we understand and we are clear on what the message that the early church proclaimed was. You're gonna see in these speeches, these speeches were given to different audiences in different countries, to different people groups, and they were given by different preachers. And with all the differences, if you compare these speeches, what you're gonna see is there's a lot of differences, but there is one, one undisputed core that is consistent in all of the declarations that you see in all of the speeches. And I believe that if you look at the different speeches and you compare them, you can trace the core, the core of the message of Christianity back to these first eight verses in Acts. So let's take a look at them together. Acts chapter one, we're gonna look at verses one to eight. Okay, so here we go. Acts chapter one, starting off in verse one. It begins this way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. Okay, those verses, by the way, we covered last week. Okay, so we talked all about those. Let's take a look at verse three. After Jesus' suffering, 
He presented himself to them and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And then he appeared to them over a period of about 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates that my father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so eight verses. There's a lot that is packed in those verses, a lot. And we could talk about a lot of things. But for the sake of our topic today, I simply wanna point out three words, three words in these eight verses that I think help us understand what the core of Christianity is all about. All right, so what are the three words? Notice in verse three, I want you to notice the word suffered, suffered. It says, after Jesus' suffering, after his suffering. Now, what is that talking about when it says that Jesus suffered? I think we all know this. This is no surprise to any of you. What that's referring to is his crucifixion. It's referring to Jesus's, his, his crucifixion despite his innocence, that he died as an innocent man. He took on human injustice upon himself and he died on the cross. So that's the first one. He suffered. But then notice this, the second word, he presented himself to them and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he was alive. What is that talking about? Well, again, I think all of us would probably know this. What that's referring to is it's referring to the historical claim that Christians make that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. So suffered, he died, he rose, he rose from the dead. And the third word is this. I want you to notice it's down in verse eight. It's this word right here. Jesus said, you're gonna receive power to his disciples. And he said, and you are gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna be my witnesses. Now, some of you guys were with us a couple weeks ago. I think it was three weeks ago. Pastor Seth actually gave a phenomenal sermon where he spent the whole time talking about what this word witness means. And you might remember if you were here, we said the word witness is a really great word because it's actually a legal term. It actually was used in courts and it meant to testify. It meant to testify about an event, about something that you saw happen. And literally the word we said meant to encircle. It meant to encircle an event. And so here's the question. Jesus here is telling his disciples, I want you to go be my witnesses. I want you to go testify on my behalf to the entire world. And what was it that he wanted them to testify about? Well, I think what you're gonna see is this, that the undisputed center, the undisputed center of the message of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is the core? What is the heart of the Christian message? It is this. The focal point and the climax is that Jesus rose from the dead. It's that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I don't want you just to take my word for that, though. And so can I just show you, I promise I'm gonna try to do this as quickly as I can, but can I just show you, if you survey the speeches that are given in the book of Acts, can I just show you how over and over again you will see that this is the focal point and the climax of every message. So I'll take you through some verses on the screen. You can just follow along on the screen if you want to. But let me just say, if you're taking notes, like if you have one of those Acts journals, it might be good for you to just flip along with me and to make some comments or to you know, underline or whatever, because I think it's pretty important. So let me show you. Okay, so Acts, we're in Acts 1. If you go to Acts chapter 2, so if you just flip over to Acts chapter 2, I want to show you this is the first speech that is given. It's the first sermon ever in the church. It's by Peter. 
So Peter is giving the first sermon. And when he gets to the climax of his sermon, what does he say? He says this. He says in verse 23, Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Later in verse 33, he says, God raised his son Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this. Now, do you guys notice the language he uses traces right back to Acts 1. Jesus died, he rose, and we are witnesses of that reality and that fact. All right, so, so take your Bible, go with me another chapter forward, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, you're going to see another sermon, another speech that was given. Peter is talking to the religious leaders. And what does he say? Look at how clear this is. You killed the author of life. God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Doesn't get much more clear than that. You killed him. God raised him. We're witnesses. It goes right back to Acts chapter 1. Go a chapter 4 to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are now preaching a sermon to the religious leaders. And the Bible's gonna say that they, the religious leaders, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. What were they teaching them? Well, they were witnessing, they were proclaiming. What was it they were witnessing and proclaiming? That Jesus had raised from the dead. He died, he rose, and they were witnessing this. Acts chapter four, later in verse 10. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised him from the dead that this man stands before you healed, Acts 4.33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was it they were witnesses of? The resurrection that took place. Acts chapter five. We're not getting very far, are we? Acts five, you go a chapter forward, another sermon. They say, God, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross, and we are witnesses of these things. Do you notice? I mean, it is so clear. Again, in Acts 10, we are witnesses of everything that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and they caused him to be seen. If you go to Acts, 7, or Acts 13, Acts 13 is the apostle Paul's first sermon. What does he say? God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him. They are his witnesses. That's what he says. Acts 13, we tell you the good news, which by the way, good news is actually where we get the word gospel from. We tell you the gospel. What is the gospel? It's what God promised our ancestors by raising Jesus from the dead, is what he says. Acts 17, as was his custom, the apostle Paul went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and then he raised from the dead. Later, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. They remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching what? The good news that Jesus had raised from the dead about the resurrection. Acts 23, then Paul said, the reason I stand on trial is because of the hope of the resurrection. Acts 24, it's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you here today. Acts 26, I stand here and I testify to all people, great and small alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and that he'd be the first that would rise from the dead. You guys, I could, give you, I could actually give you more verses than this in the book of Acts, but I think you get the point, right? It is, Acts is making it painstakingly clear what the center of the Christian message is all about. And here's what I want you to notice. You guys, Christianity at its core is actually not about a set of ethics. 
It's not about a set of teaching. The core of Christianity in, includes that, but that is actually not what Christianity is fundamentally about. Christianity is not fundamentally about a political persuasion or a political position. Christianity is not fundamentally about um, living a certain kind of moral lifestyle. It, it involves those things, okay? But that is not what it's about at its core. Christianity at its core, and I, want, I just wanna make this super clear because Acts is making it super clear. At its very core, it is about a person. And more specifically, it's not about what a person taught. Christianity is not even about what Jesus taught. It includes that, but it's not about that. Christianity is not about the example that Jesus left with his life. It includes that, but it's not about that. At its core, what it's about is it is about this. It is about, a at the center of Christianity, is a history-splitting, era-shifting, new reality-inbreaking event that impacts everyone in human history. That is, what, that is what the heart of the Christian message is. It's something happened in time and in space and in history that introduced an era-shifting event that changes the landscape for every, and, is, and it is important for every human being on planet Earth. And what is that? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that a man claimed to be God was killed and got up from the dead. That is what the core of the Christian message is all about. And you guys, the, the core of Christianity is about an announcement of a new reality and is an invitation to all people to now reorient yourself around this new reality, that there is a new era that has been introduced because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, listen, I know that when I say that, when I say, you guys, the core message of Christianity is about that Jesus died and he rose. So many of you are probably like, yeah, I know that. Like, I, I've heard that, I know that. But I think it's really important that we understand this, that we're clear on this, because what it helps us understand, when we see that the resurrection is the core of the Christian message, it helps us to see that the resurrection is not a part of the Christian message. It is central to everything. So what are the implications of this? So what I wanna do the rest of our time is I just wanna think through, if that's true, if the resurrection of Jesus is the core of the Christian message, then what does that mean? What are the implications? I just wanna think through four implications and then we're done for the day, and then we're done for the day. All right, so here they are. Implication number one. If the core of the message is the resurrection, what that means is it means without the resurrection, Christians have no message. Um, for those of us who follow Jesus, and again, I know that's not everyone here today, but for those of us who follow Jesus, this is what that means. It means that if the resurrection did not happen, that, that doesn't mean that, the, that we have, our message needs to be shifted or changed. It means that we have no message. It means that Christians have absolutely nothing to offer anybody, anywhere. The Bible's gonna be real clear on this. If the resurrection didn't happen, we have no authority, we have no mission, we have absolutely no message whatsoever. You know, I think this is an important point because sometimes I'll talk to people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor, so sometimes I'll talk to people about um, why, why they should believe in God. And so a lot of times people are trying to seek that out. They're saying, can you give me good evidence and good reasons why I should believe in God? And sometimes when people try to answer that question, they'll try to give you a logical kind of philosophical reason of why you should believe in God. Um, one of the most famous ones is something called Pascal's Wager. Have you guys ever heard of that before? It's called Pascal's Wager. So if you've never heard of that, Blaise Pascal was a, uh, he actually was a French mathematician, philosopher, and a theologian. He's a Christian, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And basically he came up with this logical, kind of this logical reason why 
a person should believe in God. And here's what he said. So if I could just draw it up. He, he basically, in a nutshell, this is what Pascal said. He said that every single person on planet Earth is wagering with your life. In other words, we're all, we're all betting our lives on something. You, me, everyone. We're all putting our faith in something and we're all betting our lives on something. So here's what Pascal said. He said, I believe it's the most logical thing you can do is believe in the God of the Bible. And basically, here's what he said. He said, imagine that there is a God, that that's true, and imagine there isn't a God, and that's not true. And he says, and imagine you either believe that or you don't believe that. And he said, so let's just think this through logically. If you're betting your life, he said, let's say that you choose that you're gonna believe the God of the Bible. You're gonna believe everything that it says about Jesus and about Christianity. He says, and then you get to the end of your life and you find out that it's all true. It checks out. It was absolutely correct. He says, well, what you glean from that, what you gain is you get infinite reward, right? So if you're right, all the things that the Bible says about eternity and about heaven and about rewards, those are all yours. Pascal went on, he said, okay. He said, but imagine that you choose to believe in God and then you get to the end of your life and you come to find out that the God of the Bible is not true. It's not real. It all was just a made up thing. He said, well, then what, what happens? He said, well, you experienced some finite loss. Yeah, you know, you, you missed out on some stuff. You know, maybe there were some things that you did on this earth that you, you, know, you kind of missed out. Maybe you had to listen to, some, to too many sermons or something like that. There's some finite loss, right? He said, now imagine, imagine that you choose not to believe in the God of the Bible and you get to the end of your life and you find out there's no God. He would say, well, in that case, there's finite gain. Maybe you've gained some stuff. You know, maybe you got to enjoy a few vices because you, know, you, you didn't buy into the whole God of the Bible thing. He says this, he says, but let's say you get to the end of your life you choose not to believe in God, and then you find out there is a God. He says, well, then you have infinite punishment. He would, literally, he would say, you have hell to pay as a result of that. So what Pascal would say is he would say, logically, the most reasonable thing you could do is put your chips down right here. At least place most of your chips down here. You, know, you want to play it safe. You want to make sure you have your insurance, and you want to make sure that you kind of cover your bases in those ways. Now, let me just tell you, I think that this this is logically credible, for sure, it is. But can I just tell you that this is nowhere close to the way that the first century Christians reasoned, not even close. Do you know what the first century Christians said with the apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, you can read it. Here's what the apostle Paul says. He says, listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we have all wasted our life. He says, we didn't just miss out a little bit. He says, we are to be pitied above all people if we have given our lives to this thing and Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But here's what they're gonna say. They're gonna say, but if Jesus did raise from the dead, if he did, that means you need to go all in with all of your chips for Jesus. Hold nothing back and go all out for him. But what you can't do is just kind of be somewhere in the middle. That's the logic that those guys would have said. In fact, I love the way um, one author by the name of Kevin Rowe, I've been reading uh, this book by him called Christianity Surprise. It's actually been a really awesome book. Here's what he said about the early Christians. He said, let it be clearly said that without the resurrection, there would have never been anything called Christianity. If you have no resurrection, you have no Christianity. The whole thing falls apart. For the, for the early Christians, the resurrection is the central truth around which all other matters turn. Indeed, for them, it is nothing less than the way that God himself is identified. God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. I don't know if you guys noticed when we were going through those passages in Acts, do you notice how many times they said, God raised him from the dead? God raised him from the dead. He says this, he said, God is the one who raised him from the dead. So if you took away the resurrection, in their mind, they thought God disappears too. 
He goes on. God's story about himself and all that he made is a story about the way in which, and I want you to catch this sentence. This is really important. It's a little dense, but it's so important. It is the way in which the resurrection of Jesus catalyzes a new understanding and a new way of being precisely because of the new reality that God has ushered into the world. This is an era-shifting event. And what does it tell us? It tells us that there is now life over death. It tells us that there's the reversal of Eden, there's hope in the future, and there's power in the present. So without the resurrection, the whole message falls apart, which leads me to the second point. The second point is this. Because of the resurrection, because that is the core, Christians are to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ above all other things. So I think, I think when you start to see that this is the core message of the early church, it should cause, for those of us who follow Jesus, it should cause us to ask this question. What is the, what is the message that Christians today are most known for speaking and propagating to the world around us? What is it that we're most known for? And I honestly, I think, I honestly think if you ask that question, I don't know what the average person would say, but maybe if you said to someone, what, what is it that Christians are most known for today? What's the message we're most known for? My guess is that for the vast majority of people, they might think of a political statement. For many people, they might think about a code of ethics. For some people, honestly, the, thing that they, the message they most associate with Christians is what we're against. Oh, Christians, you're people who are against this and against that and against this and against that. And let me, let me just say, if what we're known for, those of us who follow Jesus, if what we're known for more than this message that we believe that Jesus got up from the dead, that he died and he rose from the dead, I believe that if we're known for anything else above that, if there's anything else that we're known for more than that, it's evidence that maybe we are off center. Because what is the center of the message? The center of the message is this. It is that Jesus died and that he rose. And it means that there's implications that come along with that. And that is to be an era-shifting reality in our lives. So the question is this. If we're to testify to that, how do we do that? How do followers of Jesus testify to the resurrection? Well, I'm gonna tell you, I think there's two ways. I think there's two ways. I think the way that we do it is we testify with our lips and we testify with our lives. We testify with our lips and our lives. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, our lips, I think that makes sense. It means that that is the primary message that we proclaim. When people ask us, what is the reason for the hope that you have? Or when people ask us, what do you think is the hope of the world? Our answer is that. It is the message that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, that he died and he rose, and that ushers in a whole new set of realities that should be life-orienting for all of us. I think we witness those things with our lips. We say it with our lips. And I just gotta say, too, I think on this point, there's a very important distinction we need to make. You know, when you read Acts 1, Jesus says to those early Christians, you will be my witnesses. And I gotta say that in some ways, they are different than we are today. And the reason it's different is because it, back then in Acts chapter one, those folks were, they were legitimately eyewitnesses. They saw with their own eyes. They saw Jesus die and they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And so when Jesus said, you're gonna be my witnesses, quite literally, they were his eyewitnesses. However, it's gotta be different for us. It has to be. Because I don't know about you, I didn't see Jesus die. I didn't see Jesus raised. I didn't watch those events happen with my own eyes. So how am I to testify? How am I to be a witness? How are you, for those of us who follow Jesus, to be a witness to that? Well, here's how we do it. We are witnesses because they were authoritative witnesses. So in other words, if I can put it this way, this is so important for those of us who follow Jesus. 
we are responsible to deliver somebody else's mail, which means that we don't have the right to edit that message. We don't have the right to change that message. What it means for us to testify is that we faithfully preserve the witness that was given by the apostles that Jesus rose from the dead. You guys, this is why it's so important why we do things like this, where we come together and we open our Bibles to. Now, what is the Bible? Well, do you know what the Bible is, at least the New Testament? It is the testimony of the apostles. It's the apostles' teaching. This is why we gather in small groups and houses and we open up the Bible. We gather around the apostles' teaching to learn what they said because this is the hope that we proclaim. So we say it with our lips. But the other way that we say it is we say it with our lives. We proclaim it with our lives. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. If we genuinely believe that Jesus Christ got up from the dead, we should live lives that reflect that that reality is true. I think the question that Christians need to ask ourselves here is, does the evidence of my life and does the evidence of our collective life together as a church demonstrate to the world enough evidence to cause them to believe that we believe that a man got up from the dead? I think that's the real question. You know, I I can just tell you this much. I don't know everyone's story in our church. Um, I know a lot of your stories, but I don't know everybody's story. But can I tell you that when I think about the evidence of our church's collective life, I see a lot, a lot of compelling evidence that we are convinced that a man got up from the dead. I know, I know uh, for example, I know many of you, uh, many of you who are even in this room right now, who week in and week out have decided that you were gonna take your home and that you would open it up to dozens, sometimes more than that, several dozens of people to come into your house, some of them you don't even know, to eat your food, to drink your coffee, to spill it on your carpet. Some of you to have their kids come into your house, to put them in a room and wreak havoc somewhere there. And week in and week out, you do this. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would somebody do that? In a society where, quite honestly, the way that most of us treat our homes is like a private fortress. Why would anyone say, I am willingly going to release my grip on my things and I'm going to invite people into my personal space so that they can open up their Bibles together and study. Why would they do that? It's, and I can tell you why. It's because those people believe that Jesus Christ got up from the dead. And because Jesus Christ got up from the dead, that means it requires a radical reprioritization of the way that I view my stuff, the way I view my resources, the way I view, the way I view my house. All of those things are open. Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to do that, but some people in our church do that. And it's because they're open to Their hearts have been transformed by the resurrection. Can I tell you guys this? I know of many people in our church, many of you, who have journeyed through real tragedy. I've journeyed through with so many of you, the loss of someone near to you, for some of you, the devastating, heart-wrenching loss of even losing a child. And yet I have seen time and time again, so many of you in the midst of the most most gut-wrenching tragedy be able to mourn with an inexplicable hope. What would make you do that? What would cause someone to live so differently in that way? It's because because we believe that there's a man who got up from the dead. And that redefines everything that we think about this life and about the life that comes after and everything else. And so we we don't have to mourn without hope. We can mourn with hope. Because I know folks in our church who have decided to take their nuclear family at the safety of their nuclear family and willingly and purposefully open that up to introduce children from the foster care system into their home temporarily or long-term through adoption. 
And can I just tell you, I don't think everyone needs to do that, but there's many people in our church who have done that. And there's a lot of reasons to do that. But can I tell you, the people I know, the reason that they've decided to disrupt the safety of their own home in those ways is because they're convinced that there is a man who rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, he invited us into adoption as sons and daughters into his family. And now we are ambassadors of that message to give that to the world. The resurrection changes the way that we view our lives. It changes. You guys, I know, I know so many people in our church. I can name a handful of them to you right now and you could probably name some. I know men and women in our church who left lucrative careers that would have easily allowed them to chase the American dream to pursue ministry or to pursue missions. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong, not for a minute. I don't think everyone should do that, not for a minute. I think that we need Christians in every sphere of life, absolutely. But let me just tell you, I have seen people do that, and why would they do that? It makes no earthly sense. It's because they're convinced that a man got up from the dead, and that means that there is a more compelling and true narrative than the American dream has to offer. You guys, I give you example after example. You could probably give me example after example. You guys, I know of a chicken restaurant that serves the best chicken this side of eternity. And they refuse to do so on Sunday because of the resurrection. So there, there, is, there is a downfall to the resurrection. And uh, no, there's not. Don't, 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 quote, don't quote me a sin. There's no downfall to the resurrection. There's no downfall. But I think that we testify with our lips, we testify with our lives. Which leads me to the third thing. Because of the resurrection, what that means is that this message is for everybody. You guys, this is so important. This message that Jesus rose is for everybody. It's for everybody. You can trace everything in the book of Acts back to Acts 1.8. Jesus said to his disciples, this message is to go from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria all the way to the ends of the earth. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this message is not just for the religious people. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for Israel. This thing is for everybody. Because Jesus rose from the dead, this is an era-shifting reality that is a proclamation of good news to everybody on planet earth. You know, a lot of ways, this right here, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, in a lot of ways, that's actually an outline of the book of Acts. That's exactly how you're gonna see it pan. In the book of Acts, you're gonna see it start in Jerusalem. The message is gonna go to Judea, Samaria. And then by the end of the book of Acts, Paul is all the way over in Rome telling people about Jesus. Now, why is that important for us to understand that? Here's why it's important for us to understand that. By, by just the nature of the message and the nature of the commission, what that means is that those of us who follow Jesus must be willing to inconvenience ourselves, to cross lines, ethnic lines, social lines, political lines, all kinds of lines, because this message is for everyone. This message requires that we step outside of our comfort zone. So can I just say this? For those of us who follow Jesus, if our expression of Christianity causes us to barricade ourselves and insulate and isolate ourselves more and more and draw political lines or draw racial lines or draw whatever kind of lines around ourselves, and it doesn't propel us outward, I think that maybe that is a demonstration that we have somehow misunderstood. We have somehow misunderstood the message. We're to tell everybody, everybody, that Jesus is alive from the dead. Now, let me just say this, by the way, if you're a person who's investigating Jesus here today, some of, I understand that some of you are in a place where you're still exploring all of this. And can I just, man, can I just tell you, and gosh, I, we just, I mean this. We say it every week, but I just, I really mean this. We just count it such an honor that you would let us be part of your investigation. You could do anything you want with your Sunday morning, but you're here. 
But I know for some of you, if you're investigating Christ, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what, that right there, what you just said, that's my problem with you Christians. See, my problem is that you just said that Christians should go and tell everyone about this message and they need to go tell everybody else in the world about Christianity. And you see, that's my problem because you Christians are always going around and telling people how superior your message is. And if you, and if you believe any different, then you're lost. And the only way to be found is to come over to our way of thinking. And a lot of, I mean, honestly, that's one of the biggest criticisms that Christians get is how could you be so bigoted to say that your view is so superior to everyone else's, they need to move to yours. And can I just tell you, I'll just be as honest as I can be. To one extent, I actually agree with you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he didn't, then I need to say this, we Christians would be the worst kind of cultural bigots. We just would be. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, for us to go around and say that everyone else needs to reorient their life to the way that we think and to what we believe, that would be arrogance, that would be pride. But, and I just want you to just reason with me for a minute, if we really believe this though, that like Jesus is alive and that he rose from the dead, then I would, I would just say to you, I think that it would be the most unloving thing for us not to say that, man, there is an era-shifting reality that is now available to every person on planet Earth. And that means that everything that Jesus ever said is true. And so my, my hope is that you would see, if you're a person investigating Jesus, that our attempts to tell the world about Christ, that sometimes they might be cringy and sometimes we don't always do it the right way, but my hope is that you would see that what motivates it is love. It's love. Because we believe that a man got up from the dead, that he got up from the dead. And that leads me to this last point. And with this, I'll ask the band to come up. That's this. This message is for you. It's for you. So I, I need to tell you this. I, I don't know how this message finds you this morning. I don't know where in your life it finds you, what your circumstances look like. I don't know if you're someone who's exploring and investigating Jesus. I don't know what your religious background is. I don't know what your church background is. I don't know what your political affiliation is. I don't know what your marital status is. I don't know if you've been married multiple times, divorced multiple times. I don't know what your sexual orientation is. I don't know what you were doing last weekend. I don't know what you were doing last night. But can I just tell you this, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, no matter what your answer to those questions are, this message is for you. It's for you. It's for the world. It's for every single person that Jesus died in our place for our sins and that he rose to offer a new reality in which we are to orient our lives around. So, so let, me just, let me just say this. If you're a person who's investigating Christ, I wanna help you as much as I can narrow your search. You might have doubts about the Bible. You might have skepticism and criticism about the church. You might have problems with, with all those things. And I, I understand that, I understand that. But let me help you narrow your search. There is only one question, only one question you need to be asking, just one. Everything else hinges on this. And I believe it's the question that the early church leaders are inviting us to ask, and it's this. Did Jesus rise? Because if he did, well, then that means that there's a whole lot of things we gotta rethink. But if he didn't, then who cares? Then who cares? Then why take any of it? But if he rose, that's the question that we have to seek. So you might be asking, well, how do I seek that out? How do I investigate that? Well, my encouragement to you would be come back. In the weeks to come, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the rest of the message throughout the gospels. But I might actually point you to this. If you're someone who wants more on that, we actually did a sermon. You can get this on our website. Uh, this last Easter. 
And on, at the Easter service, we just actually provided uh, compelling historical reasons to believe that there's legitimacy to the claim that a man rose from the dead. Uh, I don't believe that this message is gonna be the thing that finally convinces you, but what I want you to see is that there is unbelievable historical evidence that's there that shows us um, that there is evidence for a resurrection, for a literal, bodily, physically resurrection. That's what we claim, and that's what we believe. But I might even encourage you, in the next weeks, what we're gonna do, you might be saying, so Jesus died and he rose. Is that all there is to the Christian message? And of course, what we would say is, no, there's more to it, which is why you have to come back, but that is the core. So without that, we don't have the message. It's about Jesus who rose from the dead. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we say thank you that you died and that you rose. And all that that means and all of the implications that flow and stem from that, Lord, I pray that you would even help us right now to just um, interact with you, to speak with you, maybe even for some of us to pray for the very first time to you. That if you, if you raise, that means that you're alive. And that means that we can follow you and we can trust you. So we ask that as we take some time and we worship and we sing, that the lyrics that we sing right now would be the prayers of our heart and that we collectively would sing to you, Jesus, our King, who rose, who rose for us and forgave us of our sins in our place. Pray these things in your name, amen.